0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation, someone that I have uh, immense respect for, for what he does and what the Human Rights Foundation does as well. And they're basically spreading of freedom uh, in the form of opposing restrictions on freedom. And that's something that uh, also is very, very close to my heart and they have recently within uh, the last six months to a year really kind of started to embrace alex in particular uh bitcoin as a form of promoting human freedom throughout the world so i was very very excited for this interview and i think you guys are gonna really really like it uh as well as just you know alex as a person as he's just a a wonderful human being and uh, was gracious enough to make some time in the evening and, uh, you know, after working a full day to sit down in his home on his free time to talk to myself and to you, the listeners as well. So anyways, if you guys could do me a really quick favor, head over to iTunes, leave a five star and a written review, as well as embrace my new partner, which is eToro, and I'd appreciate it if you'd go over to diginocrypto.com, go to the eToro banner, and click through there so that they know that they came through my link. So eToro is one of the older names in online uh, trading, and they recently have started to break into the U.S. market. They've been able to trade cryptocurrencies as well as um, various other markets, Uh, on etoro if you were outside of the united states but recently they just started to offer to u.s clients and uh, part of that push is to start to let you know u.s based crypto podcasts, bitcoin podcasts, like myself to start advertising to let people know about that so they are a not a fly by night club they've been around for over a decade they have some really cool products such as a virtual trading portfolio so you can actually test out strategies and all that kind of stuff you know, bit with money on real order books, but it's not actually your money. It's, it's, it's a virtual amount of money. So you can trade and see. well, would this strategy have worked over the long haul or would it not have? Uh, there's a bunch of other really cool stuff, such as copy trading. We can actually go and find people that you like that are you know, uh, experienced traders and actually set your portfolio to copy trade uh, their trades that they're actually doing. So it's there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. So go over to diginocrypto.com and click on the eToro banner and go through that way. So without uh, without taking up any more of your time, I just really quick want to thank you as well for listening. You guys make all of this possible and it really, I really, really do appreciate it. it. This is not just me saying it just to say it. I I do uh, appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to subscribe to download to listen uh and uh and I really appreciate that. So, I hope to hear from you guys. Feel free to reach out at any time. I'm not uh I'm not shy about it. So, hit me up on Twitter, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you want to. You can find all those links at diginocrypto.com. and uh why don't we just uh, head right into the show? Today, I welcome Alex Gladstein, activist and chief strategy officer for the Human Rights Foundation. He has tirelessly worked to connect dissidents with the people, tech, and recognition necessary to bring about a freer society, truly bringing the idea that a fight for liberty anywhere is a fight for liberty every, everywhere. Alex, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on,
0: Dustin. Yeah, and I first became kind of aware of you and the work that you do at the Human Rights Foundation uh, last December on, on Peter's, uh, podcast. And, and while I don't know you too well, I've, I've kind of started following you since then. And, uh, I, I could tell that you were, you know, someone that kind of really gets it and just kind of like a, a quick little background and, in, and in, into mine, I, I did some work overseas years back where it kind of interfaced with NGOs and aid organizations. And a lot of my, you know, granted limited experience as well, that a lot of these folks over there, you know, mean well, um, but they're kind of clueless in a way, um, in the best sense of the way. Is that? And granted, this is with USAID, so that might be skewing it a bit. But um, a lot of these people kind of would look at these places as kind of a a foreign culture, but through the lens of their own cultural context. You know, not really vice versa in the cultural context of their uh, of the uh, culture that they're trying to interface with. So, uh, sorry. To, to go along here, but what I'm trying to get across is that I, I think that a lot of people in the West don't really understand, you know, kind of what real repression, real poverty, and those types of things are. What, what are your kind of thoughts on, I guess, uh, you know, Western apathy towards towards the plight of a lot of people?
1: Well, I mean, people are shaped by the information environment that they live in. And I don't think we can reasonably expect people to go above and beyond what is sort of readily available to them as far as information and in the West or in the United States or in Europe, our information is traditionally shaped by mainstream media. And even though we've kind of shifted to a digital landscape, uh, mainstream media outlets continue to shape the information economy and mainstream media outlets, hire their reporters and focus their coverage based on a number of factors uh, that range from audience interest to genre to, you know, what they deem is hot. But regardless of like the formula that they use, a bias appears, meaning there are vast parts of the world with millions or billions of people with fascinating urgent dire things happening that just basically get no media coverage and then there's like other parts of the world that constantly get tons of media coverage especially for you know like from a western perspective i think you could say the same thing about any part of the world but like for people in the united states there are large countries that have like crazy things happening where, you know, maybe people would like to know about these things and be able to make a difference potentially in these areas, but there's just not like local reporters hired and our newspapers and media outlets and, you know, video units don't cover these things. So for example, like Cameroon is a good example. Cameroon is a country in Western, Central Western Africa, where More than a hundred thousand people have been displaced by violence, uh, committed by the, uh, Francophone majority, uh, and they are persecuting the Anglophone minority. This is a a very bizarre case of, uh, people being persecuted by, with regard to the language that they speak. And this is like a top 10 world disaster in terms of the number of people who fled or have been uh, displaced from their homes or who've been killed. And yet you just, there's just no media coverage of it at all, um, in, in the West. Right. Um, and, and that's a symptom of, of, I guess what I'm trying to say is kind of like a broken media environment. So we learn about some things, but not others. And that drives a lot of apathy that drives a lot of like people in, uh, you know, I assume in your audience, just not, not even being given the opportunity to, to be empathetic. Because they have no idea, right? So if you don't know that there's 2 million Muslims in prison camps in Northwestern China, you're not going to do anything about it. If you don't know that there's hundreds of thousands of people displaced from their homes in Cameroon, there's nothing you can do about it. If you don't know that by the end of next year, more than 8 million Venezuelans will have fled Venezuela in the world largest refugee crisis, there's nothing you can do about it. If you don't know that in Afghanistan, as the U.S. begins to pull out, um, the Taliban may take control again and eliminate the possibility of education for women. There's nothing you can do about it. And I think that media narratives uh, end up driving, you know, the current state of apathy in, in, in the world today.
0: And I, I apologize, I guess I kind of uh, jumped the gun there right on onto a question. But uh, uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving maybe a, a little bit of background of your, you know, why you kind of got into uh, this, you know, this this sort of work in the first place, as well as uh, who the Human Rights Foundation is. I mean, you mentioned Venezuela. I know that that's kind of a, a very, that's a very special place um, with, with HRF. But if you just kind of give a, a good overview uh, of, of yourself and the foundation.
1: Sure. I've been working for the Human Rights Foundation since 2007. We are a nonprofit based in New York City, a 501c3 that focuses on Promoting and protecting individual rights in repressed countries, in authoritarian societies, in places where people don't have the same rights and freedoms as we might have in countries like Chile or Japan or Germany or the United States. Um, We look at more than 90 countries where there are more than four billion people who aren't able to hold their governments accountable, don't have free fair elections, can't write an op-ed in the local news aren't able to launch an independent environmental organization or an independent uh, health or policy reform organization can't start an amnesty international this is you know this is what it's like socially and politically speaking in a place like saudi arabia these things just aren't possible so we try and uh, empower and assist change makers in these societies, because we believe uh, that no matter what you care about, whether it's peace or um, gender equality or life expectancy or prosperity, uh, you should care about freedom. There is absolute correlation and, and more than correlation to suggest that free and open societies are more wealthy, more equal, more peaceful, more innovative. Uh, and just better for humans and better for the planet um, than, than ones that are closed and dictatorial. So that's the Human Rights Foundation's mission is to kind of like highlight the problem of authoritarianism and do what we can to push back against it. And that has shaped my career where I've been able to work in different areas of the organization and work closely on a couple different projects, including our North Korea work where we smuggle flash drives into the hermit kingdom, to our work where we try and pressure celebrities to not accept speaking or performing engagements inside dictatorships. This was the subject of news uh, right now and yesterday where um, we successfully managed to convince Nicki Minaj to not sing in Saudi Arabia. And she came out with a statement yesterday saying that um, after reading our public letter, that, it, that she's decided not to accept the, the invitation to, to perform at a government-backed event there, and instead it has issued a statement of support for gay rights and, and women's rights and free expression, which is remarkable if you consider that her Instagram following alone is three times the number of citizens that exist in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this woman basically has a country uh, a, a country-sized following. And she basically has realized she has her own foreign policy and has decided she's going to make a stand for human rights, which is really cool. So I've worked on that program. I've done a lot of work with the media uh, in in getting the issue of dictatorship into pop culture. Um, Done a lot of work on the technology front where we've been able to connect dissidents to people who can help them understand everything from uh, why encrypted messaging is important to why decentralized money and private payments are important. So I I hope that gives you a good idea of what what I've been up to.
0: Was there a a specific um, event or thing that that kind of inspired you to kind of dedicate, you know, your life to this? Or was it just kind of one of those things where you kind of fell into it and, and found your passion along the way? Yeah, I mean,
1: I was always interested in international affairs and the way that the world worked on a macro level. And I I kind of uh, was lucky to get the opportunity to work at the Human Rights Foundation in its very early years. And it kind of worked out from there. I uh, had a deep appreciation for and interest in the work that the Foundation was doing. And I've been able to, to contribute in a meaningful way. And we continue to push the envelope uh, as to what's possible with regard to challenging authoritarianism and and supporting people who are in
0: closed environments. And Bitcoin has kind of, uh, you know, become over probably the last six or so uh, months, kind of a a much larger focus in your work, in your talks. Um, So how did, you know, how did, you know, Bitcoin find you and, and what is it about Bitcoin that that so kind of markedly changed kind of your your focus um per se on on really seeing this as as a big or a major tool for for challenging these these regimes
1: well i am um, i first started thinking about bitcoin in 2014 when i read a new york times article by mark Andreessen where he talked about the revolutionary nature of this technology and my interest was peaked and in 2016 Bill Tai, who's on the uh, board of BitFury, uh, basically started bringing up the idea of introducing Bitcoin to human rights activists, and I thought it was a cool idea. I didn't know too much about Bitcoin in detail or or, or cryptocurrency or blockchain at the time, um, but I started to explore it more. and We had we had a couple people from BitFury come out to the Freedom Forum in Oslo that we produce uh, in in the spring of 2017, and. I've just gone down the rabbit hole from there.
0: Now, I mean, I can see how you know. Obviously, I'm I'm a a, a proponent and a, you know a, a passionate about Bitcoin, but you know, seeing it as a, the use case as a store of value in countries with with runaway inflation and issues like that. You know, Argentina, um, Turkey, Venezuela, obviously, um, migrant workers using it for remittances. Um, just the, the kind of cartel of, of, uh, of remittances with money, Graham and, and, and Western Union charging outrageous fees um, or, you know, even donations for dissidents. I see all those use, use cases. But if you look at uh, specifically these kind of total authoritarian regimes like North Korea, um, I, I don't personally see where Bitcoin can do that much good at the, at the very moment. But but I may be wrong. Is there is, has there been a use case for for Bitcoin inside North Korea? And if not, what are what are kind of the, the best ways for changing the path of these really, you know, kind of uh, I mean, North Korea is a, it, it, it's it, it's insidious, but it's a genius way that they've built that society for perpetuating the regime. You know, the 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 concept where they have the workers every day. Um, you know, where they have to tell basically talk about their sins against the regime as well as others that they've seen. I think it's if I'm not mistaken, it's like three other people that they saw, you know, not doing the right thing. And it's just like this ingrained network of of telling on yourself as well as others.
1: Yeah, look, I mean North Korea is a very extreme example. I mean, you could break the world down into Uh, democracies and dictatorships and you're kind of going the gamut from Norway to North Korea and um, North Korea is pretty much the most closed society in the world and you're right like Bitcoin's not having a major impact for North Koreans right now I I think that would be a a huge stretch to imply Um, now are there people experimenting with Bitcoin on the Chinese border definitely Um, will Bitcoin have a big impact in North Korea in the future I think so Um, but that's not really where we're seeing people use Bitcoin as a, as a, as a a tool to evade financial, uh, restrictions. I mean, primarily because you really need access to the internet. You need unfettered access to the internet to really usefully use Bitcoin. I I know that there's certainly people who are fighting the good fight with regard to creating, uh, the ability to do uh, Bitcoin transactions in difficult information environments with regard to mesh networks and, satellite uh sort of send receive functions on on the blockchain network which which is amazing and super cool but at the end of the day you know the average north korean you know is not going to have like a raspberry pi type device that yeah. send and receive bitcoin on the blockchain satellite network that just doesn't exist now if people who are listening want to help me make that possible let's let's do it but like i don't i don't think that that's uh, a reality right now what is reality is that People inside dictatorships ranging from Iran to Venezuela um, to Zimbabwe to China are using Bitcoin. Lots of people are using Bitcoin in these countries to evade sanctions, to evade financial controls, uh, and and to move money in a way where, where the government can't punish them. And I think that that's pretty revolutionary. So, I mean, we, we, we just have to kind of report on what we've seen and look at the research we've done. And... In, in many societies around the world, on different continents, uh, Bitcoin's having a, a pretty big impact already.
0: And with, you know, Libra kind of jumping on the stage, and so far, all we've really heard is is just, you know, the, the white paper, and kind of a little bit of the press releases and, and a few of the talks that they have given. Um, so it's really hard to tell what it'll actually be versus what they've said it will be but it seems to me that it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way uh in, in terms of freedom and so I, I think both of us are pretty aware of the downsides of it you know um it's kind of a, an attempt to steal a bit of bitcoin thunder render it a niche project but the, also this retail surveillance panopticon that it would create where what i foresee is all these uh organizations you know the ubers and visas and all them that are going to be Participating in it, my guess is they are going to be collecting all the data on users um, and their associated Libra accounts, even if they are so-called pseudonymous, um, and and creating what you know will be probably the largest, you know, retail surveillance chain uh, of all time. But on the flip side of that, um, it, it would offer at scale an alternative alternative to natural currencies. You know, it, it could replace them. Um, but also that, you know, like you've talked about incentivizing a lot of them to be more, uh, sound and secure, but, you know, I can't write this thing off as totally being evil. Obviously it has some major upsides, you know, for remittances and things like that. You know, what are, what are your feelings on it? Um, on at least, uh, the, uh, the positives and then, and then maybe the more the negatives.
1: Yeah. Well, look, um, you're seeing the rise of corporate money that's controlled by non-nation-state entities. And you're looking at a scenario where in perhaps two, two years or something like that, um, citizens of countries with devaluing currencies, currencies that are depreciating against, for example, the U S dollar or gold in a, in a, in a severe way are going to have access to a more stable asset through their Facebook account essentially. And you know, if you're sitting in Nigeria and you're looking at the Naira, or you're sitting in the Philippines and looking at the peso, you know, what are you gonna to want to have your 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 money in? You know, what what form of currency are you gonna to want to have your money stored in? I would imagine it's gonna be Libra and not the nation state currency. And and this is gonna basically trigger a, a, a huge shift away from the use uh of nation-state currencies and will probably lead to a major devaluation of all but the most kind of stable currencies. Currencies that are included in Libra's basket of currencies um, I think will, will remain fairly strong for at least a little while. So whether it's the Swiss franc or the, the yen, uh, the dollar, potentially the Renimbi, I'm I'm not sure, but there's gonna be a basket of currencies that essentially get the seal of approval from a company like Facebook. And it it might just not be Libra. I mean, we could be talking about a couple other Western companies that that roll out a, a, a sort of stable asset like this that's for their users. So we might be looking at Amazon and Google, let's say. So let's say we may have a bunch of different corporate coins that are like autonomous from nation states that may be influenced by nation states, but ultimately are run autonomously. These are gonna be different from the end game of fiat currency, which I believe is, is something most closely resembling what WeChat pay is today. So you have like the Chinese state currency in its final form will, will resemble something like WeChat pay where citizens are interacting uh, digitally in a Minimdi a, ecosystem but all of their transactions are easily surveillable and confiscatable and censorable. That's like the wet dream of dictators, right? So you kind of have like the end game of, of fiat money in this kind of like highly controlled environment. Uh, and, and you can kind of see what that looks like and what that leads to concentration camps, right? So like the, the total control over people is not going to end well. then you have corporate money. Um, which is obviously the, the path that Libra's sketching out. And then you have something else, right? Then you have what I hope people start to consider. And that's the, I think what Andreas Antonopoulos calls the money of the people, which is Bitcoin, right? So you have the third option, money that's not owned by anybody, right? Money that's not centralized, that has no single point of failure, money that is not censorable, money that is not confiscatable, Money that is much more difficult to surveil, money that is borderless, money that is global. This is fascinating to me. So no matter what happens with Libra, it doesn't have the properties that make Bitcoin so interesting. Bitcoin's deflationary, Libra will be inflationary. Bitcoin's censorship resistant, Libra will be ultimately censorable. Bitcoin is permissionless. You don't need an ID or bank account to use it. I think that certainly uh, in most countries, if not all, your access to Libra will require some sort of identification. Um, You know, Bitcoin is global. Uh, Libra certainly won't work in China, for example, probably not even in India, right? And. You know, Bitcoin gives us a roadmap for privacy. I mean, if you're using good operational security, it's it's much more difficult to spy on your Bitcoin transactions today, even in 2019, than it would be if you're just using, you know, the normal money system. Right? It's just something that is uh, easily uh, obtainable by governments with essentially a phone call or an email, at least in the United States, given the Bank Secrecy Act. With Bitcoin, if you're a savvy user a government's got to hire a chain analysis company to figure out what you're doing and and that's going to be expensive and take a lot of time. So there are a lot of differentiators that will, I believe, preserve Bitcoin's value even in a, even in a future where Libra's like wildly successful. Now, I also think that Libra will potentially be a large on-ramp for people to start to like think about cryptocurrencies and money that's not controlled by governments and potentially be very bullish for Bitcoin. Um, so, I mean, those are, I guess, like the positives and, and the way I, I think Libra is going to start to change the world. But, uh, you know, the negatives are that obviously the nightmare scenario is that, um, much like Facebook is starting to censor speech today and, and become a publisher. Mm-hmm. As soon as they, as soon as they start to censor speech, they, they cease becoming a, a, like, a, like like an internet or a telecommunications like public good and they become a publisher right And you know what's dangerous is if your opinions shared on your Facebook page start to limit your access to sending and receiving money right um, And, and that, that's the, obviously the nightmare scenario number one uh, the second nightmare scenario would be that um, all of your payments on, on Libra are sort of bought by like companies that in a mercenary-like way are you know essentially buying these validator nodes for the right to have access to all of this payment data and start to micro-track us in a way which they could sell to governments um, or just kind of keep for themselves. So I think you have major, major concerns with regard to both censorship, um, thought police kind of censorship and also surveillance and control. So um i I don't think that that libra is is by any means um like rosy from a a human rights point of view i mean it may be very convenient and, and may help a lot of people in an immediate sense in terms of folks who have whatsapp and facebook but don't but don't have an ability of sending their family money quickly right so that could be a paradigm shift think about a whatsapp user in nigeria and a whatsapp user in america being able to just quickly trade money back and forth i mean that would be a huge win but it comes with real costs everything has trade-offs i mean i just watched a debate between arthur hayes of bitmex and noriel rubini the famous bitcoin critic and NYU professor and noriel was kind of like well why the hell do we need bitcoin we already have wechat pay and apple pay (laughs) and arthur's kind of like well like you're right in as much as Like at the moment, like Bitcoin's like way slower and less efficient. It doesn't work as well as these things, but, but your, your usage of these corporate, um, or nation state, you know, monies is, it it puts you entirely in their hands, right? So I think that's the thing we have to realize is that if we want a future where we still have private money, if, I mean, if we want privacy, digital liberties in the future, we're going to have to have private money. We're going to have to have decentralized money that has some measure of privacy over total government surveillance. I don't think you're going to have perfect privacy, um, but some measure of it is is, is is quite important.
0: So kind of along that same line as well is that you know looking around the world and 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 kind of um, I guess kind of piggybacking off my 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 first my first thing there uh, statement was that. You know, if you look at most Westerners, we kind of live in a bubble. Um, even a lot of us, that when we travel, you know, we kind of travel within kind of that Western tourist bubble. We go to Mexico. Don't really, you know, even if you go there, you don't venture but a few miles, if that, outside of the resort. You know, you go to Europe. It, it's kind of all very similar, right? Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of, of, of Bitcoiners per se have this this issue. We skew younger. We haven't had a lot of, like, life experience as well. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, Bitcoin shines the brightest where the situation is, is the bleakest. And a lot of people just haven't haven't been there. I've, I've been I don't know if you want to say fortunate, but I, I've, I've been to places where, you know, and they are some of the poorest countries in the world. And you just kind of see, um, you know, usually poverty is a, you know, also you find a high overlap on that Venn diagram of authoritarianism as well. Um, do you kind of see some of these same blinders um, we, we talked about, or you, you talked about the Western apathy, but you kind of see these blinders within Bitcoin, within uh, a lot of Western people, but, uh, or you know, uh, citizens of Western countries. How do we help stave off those kind of same tendencies of trading um, security or our privacy and our freedom for security? How do we keep this from metastasizing kind of in our own? our own um, host nations well we got to educate
1: people about about bitcoin about the fact that there is another option i mean most people just don't know and and most people who even have heard about bitcoin or even have speculated in it the majority of them don't don't kind of haven't put the pieces together with regard to why decentralized private money is going to be critical to maintaining our human rights in the future so, just kind of underlining this point is key, and and to do that in an effective way, we have to be honest. In as much as, you know, Bitcoin is not a private anonymous money. Obviously, it is pseudonymous. Obviously, it's a public ledger that anyone with a, a decent amount of um, time and and a slight amount of technical savvy can can look at the transactions. Um, you know, we have to be aware that we're not where we need to be. However, the the very fact that, you know, with good operational security and digital hygiene and, you know, by using new addresses and by using mixers on the base layer, you can achieve a decent level of privacy today. And our hope is that second layer technology like Lightning, uh, for example, will allow uh, batched micropayments that are routed in an onion-routed way, um, in a relatively anonymous way, so that chain analysis is rendered fairly useless. The goal is that I have a lightning wallet um, that I use uh, to purchase things from the internet and purchase tickets on public transport and, you know, make investments potentially and um, send money to friends and and buy media and online articles and music and I do that uh, you know in a way that is maximally disconnected from my identity I mean we're not going to have perfect privacy but the, the idea that I can do those things um, through an app potentially uh, where the merchant is you know either, they're seeing a visa transaction or they're seeing some, like a, like a cash app transaction. Um, but you're doing it via lightning and, and you're like disassociating yourself at least a little bit from what the merchants see, uh, that that reality is something I think we, we want to work towards. Um, and that requires public education. It requires investment in these technologies and ultimately it will require um, major platforms to be convinced to accommodate this. And, you know, it starts with stuff like cash app, right. Um, which is clearly, you know, under Jack's leadership moving in a direction where they want to set up lightning payments uh, on their app. Now it's a, it's a halfway solution, meaning, you know, to have a square cash app, uh, installed on your phone today, you still, you need to, there's a certain level of know your customer, uh, anti-money laundering, uh, things you need to sort of do. You need to prove your identity. So we're not quite where we need to be, but like companies taking the lead here is, is going to be pretty positive. So, um, you know, again, I think it comes down to public education and, and dialogue with companies and encouraging them to, to adopt this new technology.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that a lot of people just, you know, the first thing that authoritarian regimes do when you step out of line is, uh, especially if you're somebody with any kind of means at all, they, they lock your bank account down. Uh, like Mikhail Khodorovsky in, in Russia a few years back. I mean, he was, I believe, one of, if not the richest man um, in Russia at the time. And when he kind of stepped out of line um and kind of broke uh broke ranks with putin and in the united russia party there um you know alongside of getting locked up all of his wealth was locked up same thing happened in saudi arabia with kind of that semi-coup uh there with um uh, with with the new crown prince uh, a few years back as well as a lot of people that were seen as uh, rivals you know they were they were put on house arrest, their assets frozen, everything like that. Uh, but outside of money as well, what are tools that that you um, you know help you know dissidents and journalists use to kind of increase their privacy, increase their security? That you know the average user as well, because just like coin mixers help obfuscate the the Bitcoin um, network or you know our, our transactions throughout the network, you know. If everybody's practicing higher levels of security and privacy, it kind of obfuscates you know the 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 communications and the information network. so what are what are some of the tools that you would recommend that you know people listening um, uh, should should be using? Yeah, I mean look
1: look, we have three things we we should think about communications money, and personal data, right? So communications is where we're furthest along, meaning, a lot of activists and journalists already understand how to encrypt their communications so that it's very difficult for governments to spy in them. So you can use signal. So I would encourage everybody to use signal. Now signal's not perfect. You have to use a phone number, um, to set up your signal account, but you know, if you've done it the right way, uh, unless they, you know, have your private key, it's not like, it's, it's like not like a government can get into your signal messages. Right. So, um, we have tools that are widely available and relatively easy to use and people can arm themselves and protect their communications we're not where we need to be in terms of usability user interface or public education but we've, we've got a great start um there could very well be a world where in five years signal has like 500 million daily active users i mean that, that, that's a possibility uh money we're we're getting there i mean we've got at least the foundation much like encrypted communications, we, we have encrypted money. Um, Bitcoin does exist. Um, it is decentralized. Uh, it doesn't have a single point of failure. Uh, it's not feasibly censorable by a government or a company. Um, and you know, if you know what you're doing, you can start to make it more private, right? So so we're kind of like we've 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 begun the battle there. Personal data is where we're like farthest away. Um, now zero knowledge proofs. Uh, give us an opportunity to start creating, um, you know, sovereign data where we can disclose, you know, what we want to third parties about ourselves, but we're just nowhere close to um, where we need to be in terms of uh, the technology and uh, merchant interest in adoption and, you know, our ability to robustly and securely actually own. Um, our own data. So right now, we're, you know, everybody's relying on on third parties, and we have risks and big problems. Um, so that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, we're 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 really well along with communications. We're decent. We have a decent start with money and transactions and payments, and um, we're 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 barely begun with personal data with different kinds of personal data. So ultimately, we're going to need usable. Uh, easy to use, well-designed, well-functioning technology and markets um, and apps and both like merchant and user adoption globally for all three before we can kind of feel safe from the surveillance state.
0: And what is the best way that people can help out? for the, you know, the global fight for freedom? Uh, you know, just uh, what kinds of ways should they be spreading awareness? You know, how can they help um, uh, the Human Rights Foundation? You know, uh, what's what's the, the biggest impact, the most bang for your buck that somebody can, can do?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we created this conference series called the Oslo Freedom Forum so that no matter what your background is, whether you're in technology or you're a student or you're maybe you're a policymaker, a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, journalist, Um, you you should come to these events and you can kind of start to figure out how you can help. That's the idea. So it's a global event series, the summit's in Norway in May. um, That's the one I recommend people go to. It's an immersive four day experience. It's life-changing. And then we have one day events to help open your eyes and you can bring friends and it's a really fun day. And we do those in New York and in Taiwan and in Mexico city. So I would encourage people to go to oslofreedomforum.com. And and that's like a nice kind of like way to get started. You can follow us on Twitter at HRF. You can follow me at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. Obviously, if you're you're so moved and you want to make a financial contribution for a particular project, um, let's do it. And um, otherwise, uh, yeah, just keep reading and keep exploring.
0: Well, I want to thank you for your time. I know it's uh, it's late there in New York, uh, but, I, but I really, really do appreciate it because I, I just really love the work that you guys are doing over there. And um, I guess you, you already mentioned uh, where to get a hold of you on Twitter. And uh, I will have the links in the show notes to this episode at DidYouKnowCrypto.com slash EP43 for episode 43. And I'll have the links to all the um, social media contacts as well as uh, articles and other things that we mentioned in this episode. And, And once again, Alex, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.